episode of Startup Talks. I have the immense pleasure to welcome Jason Flick, uh, of formerly of UITV, who's here with us today. And uh, we've got a lot of stuff to talk about, but uh, Jason, how are you doing? I'm doing awesome. I'm excited. I'm looking forward to this. We've got some really good topics to dig into here. Yeah, agreed, agreed. And I think they're all topics, you know, uh, we're talking about like, you know, exits. What's what's that all about? And um, the whole process that you go uh, that you go through from idea, because this all started, you know, UITV was a grain of an idea at some point, all the way to the very concrete finality of an exit. And there's obviously a lot that happens in between. Simple straight path every time. <laughs> I highly doubt that. <laughs> so obviously, we want to get into that in a little bit more detail. Um, but um, how have the last few months been for you? You must be on something of a cloud. Uh, I couldn't imagine. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it's um, it, it's a big change, right? You had you knew every day what you had to do, what clarity was. You knew what your two year plan, your five year plan was, and you you can't you don't ever want you 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 can't say we are going to exit this is going to happen so so you got to be really careful not to plan for the exit because i know a bunch of people and we probably both know them you know where they were doing their business and okay it's going to sell and a year later hadn't sold and it really is damaging so when it finally did sell which is only a couple months ago i had done no planning so i'm really just taking my time um it it there there's excitement for sure there's also just weirdness of not having the routine. It's sometimes you feel like the, you know, the dog that got the car because, you know, yeah, okay, sure, you all want this. But then, wow, now what do you do next, right? Anything, something, who knows? So that's a journey I'm on. I can't talk a lot about it because I'm only two months into that. But I'm certainly talking to a lot of people that have been through this before. Yeah, no doubt. Um, it's funny that the dog chasing the car. Finally, I get this thing that I've been working towards for 10 years, 15 years. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, uh, a paradigm shift. Everything's different. Yeah. And um, you know, not to not to go too deep into this, but I'm I imagine you definitely want to take enough time before jumping into something else. So you really are just you, you've opened your agenda. You're kind of probably just in observation mode, looking at different opportunities from afar. Uh, yeah, I'm sitting on as many panels as I can and doing a lot of mentoring, doing stuff like this, just some some give back stuff. Um, but I'm certainly looking at some startups. And then what's next? A, a lot of my passions like SpaceX and all that stuff, I don't think I can do a business in. So, um, But trying to find the right, because you really want to mix your passion and your background and and then, of course, where you are, right? All these factors together so that it can be um, as straightforward as possible. And we'll talk about how not straightforward it is to take it from an idea to uh, exit. But, you know, all the variables matter, right? Where you are, who you are, um, what you're looking at, what you're passionate about. It really matters. Yeah. And speaking of your background, so before UITV and that whole saga, where did you get your start in entrepreneurship? Like what was your first uh, tiptoe in the pool um, and kind of maybe bring us up to relatively present day and how it led to UITV and the eventual exit? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, 
I think it was kind of always in there because even as a kid, I was doing, I would do entrepreneurial stuff, whether it's cutting grass or helping people fix computers or whatever. And then even throughout university, I had a bunch of businesses um, we, we used to buy when the government used to just donate all or just uh, sell off all their computer stuff. We'd buy skids of this computer stuff, buy a truck, load up all this broken computer stuff, and we'd fix it at home with all my, the guys that I was had renting the place. I was a bit of an entrepreneur, even in my, the place we were renting, fix them all up and sell them on news groups. If people know what those are, that's kind of the precursor. And so I had that. So I've always kind of had something, but I, I did, that did teach me enough to learn that, wow, it is a lot of work. There's a lot of complexity to running a business. And then I did kind of intentionally choose to go get some, some real experience. And, and of course went through and got a degree in computer science and I love technology. So I, I got a bunch of programming jobs, worked my way up, you know, manager, VP, CTO, uh, co-founder of a business even, and then said, okay, now let's, let's do something on my own. And UI was my second to kind of um, do from zero to idea. Flix offer was my first, um, but also, yeah, part of Enable and, and early days of FT and those two. And, and those were very valuable experience. You, you, ID, not everyone does it, but I think there is some value in, in be, getting some on, on-hand experience and seeing, even if it's just bad. I was in some bad startups too. Um, you know, TouchLink was a wild ride, you know, and I learned, I, you learn way more when, when shit's broken. Like uh, people come to me and say, I'm working this terrible startup. It's great. You're going to learn a lot, right? Like you're learning. You're doing a, a, a BA master's and PhD in business right there. Just keep going. Yeah. Like I remember I walked into FTA and all the things that my previous startup did wrong, they did incredibly well. So I learned, I, you know, luckily I appreciated all that. If I had not, I wouldn't have appreciated it. Um, then they had other things, you know, they did wrong and, and that's when you learn. So yeah, you want to get involved and, and get those lessons out and, and just kind of get a feel for it. It reminds me of a quote that I saw on social media the other day that really resonated with me. Uh, a failed startup is not necessarily a failed entrepreneur. Like that's pretty much what you're saying here. And I think the, the experience one can gain in failure is essential, you know, assuming it's not a catastrophic failure, you know, that really like cripples someone for a long period of time. But um, it's almost like when you're young and you have uh, very few commitments and dependence, it's almost like you, it's a rite of passage <laughs> to sort of see what that's like. And I, I, I don't know if you'd be terribly effective if you never experienced failure either. You know, if you only win your whole life because you're taking like small steps or you're going after easy problems to solve. Yeah. And it never is easy it, behind the scenes, right? The metaphorical duck legs are going, it, it can, even the easy stuff often isn't that. And it's funny you mentioned it because funding is an interesting one. I think we'll probably talk about it a bit later. Um, people used to come to me for advice for funding all the time. And I'm like, hey, I'm 10 years because I had Flick software. We didn't really seek too much funding, but it helps them. I'd been like 10 years. I haven't raised any funding, right? This is 10 years <laughs> ago. So I suck at it. Like, why would you come ask me for advice on funding? But then when you do finally raise funding, you look back and go, wow, I learned a lot more failing at raising and funding. When I finally got it done, it was like, really? That's, it was... And, and often it's little things that make the difference. Oh, well, he, he, he likes the city and he knew somebody we knew and they, they were told to invest in this sub-vertical. It's like, wow, that's why they're investing. And so my last 10 tries just didn't have this little twist. So yeah, you, you learn a lot more when it doesn't work. People know that, yeah. Yeah, it's like, just as you're recounting your time from you know, your education to UI, you've done a tremendous amount in your life because you're not that old. Like It's important to mention you're not you're, you're, you're not in your fifties, um, yet. Uh, and so you've done a lot. Um, it sounds like a straight path from the outside, but you keep referring to the fact that like, you're actually working extremely hard. You're sweating. Uh, 
um, and, you're, and you're making a lot of mistakes along the way. What would you say was your greatest learning in that whole process? You know, I think the the biggest thing for me and 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 some startups don't do this, and it's around um, you know having something bigger than just running the startup and exiting and making money or whatever. Right? You have to ideally um, have a why, have a big, hairy, audacious goal that's bigger than yourself, bigger than your company. That is what's driving you, because that will get you through the tougher days. That'll also help you hire talent. But I think that's the big thing. You can't just do it. Hey, I this is the next thing on my journey. I have to do it and get it done. You really should try and find things you're passionate about. And, um, and I think that was a key thing. I think a lot of my previous ones, we were just like, yeah, we got to grind at this. You won't make it. It's not sustainable. You know, most people, if you ask them, Hey, would you do the startup again? Like if I knew what I knew now, how much work it was. And I told myself I wouldn't have done it. Right. And that's true in so many cases. And sure. You know, now if you do the math now, because I'm 20 years in on running my own, if you do the math, it works out pretty good. But I did 20 years of, of making, you know, not necessarily the best salaries in all those years to get to the point where I got to now. Right. Yeah. The math still works out. It's good. I'll do it. But wow. Um, yeah, it's a lot of work. So you want to have that thing that you're even more passionate about than just the exit. And do you have like a certain framework that you use to determine a big, hairy, audacious goal, a worthwhile mission for you to pursue? Like you'll probably apply some kind of framework in pursuit of your next adventure, right? But for, for entrepreneurs who are getting started, who maybe haven't found that, you know, that calling yet and, or haven't crystallized a vision of the future that they want to bring about. Do you have maybe some suggestions for them on how they would go about thinking about it? Yeah, I, I, I don't. Uh, I think, you know, you need to do a lot of introspection and be, and be really honest with yourself is what it is, right? Because um, if you look at UI, you can't say, hey, I, I wasn't born an art and science person, right? But that was a big part of why UI was successful. But I did learn after years of doing technology companies that the just making something work is as that's that's been done. That's That's been dead for 10 years, right? Oh, look, I can you know, back at Flix Offers Day, I can take a piece of data from your database and I can put it on a PDA and you can get it out in the field. Who cares how ugly it lurks? Wow, you can find out some data in the field. Whoa, that's amazing. That's, that is of zero value now. It's all the packaging, it's all that. So I didn't, you know, I learned that that, that was there. Maybe it was already there, but I love to mix beautiful experiences with productive results, making technology, you know, fun and easy to use. I loved it. Um, I don't know if that was in me already, or I certainly realized you needed it. It's the era we're in, but I got very passionate. I loved watching people's eyes light up when they touched and used our technology. So that was a journey I went on. It just took a lot of introspection. You got to, you know, be pretty brutal with yourself. And I think each vertical in medical, maybe it's something different. Maybe it isn't about great experiences in medical. It's about ultimate safety and encryption and security. And then you get really satisfied about, you know, that, but I think it is, it's something you just, you really, you have to, you can build a bit of it, I guess, maybe, but you really have to be brutally honest with yourself and spend a lot of time internally. Okay. So a lot of introspection and um, yeah. So you obviously go through a lot of phases, you know, all the different phases of development of a startup as you're, you know, at first it's just you, and then it's you and a few other people who really believe in this thing. 
but it's still very much just an idea, very, it's not concrete. Eventually you have an actual business and then it eventually becomes something big that actually has a significant impact. And it it's desirable enough to be acquired by like a multinational that's well-known, right? Um, how would you explain your evolution as a CEO throughout that process? Like obviously the, the role changes over time, the challenges are different. Um, maybe you could take us through in, a, in chronological order, like what the different, what the big, like the top two or three challenges were at each phase and how you had to constantly um, learn and evolve on a personal level to step up to the challenge. Wow. Yeah. And how long did you say we have? <laughs> so, Take no, all the time you want. <laughs> it's a great, it's a great question. So, I mean, you start off, it's just all grit and passion and, and, you know, ignorance, right? Cause you're starting up a, to start from zero, even now, just to think to start from zero, like no bank account, no account. It's even scary for me to think back to zero when I did it. Right. So the early days is really just being scrappy. Everybody does what they have to. In fact, up to about 10 people, you really, that's what you want. You want, it's almost mayhem. Everybody does a bit of everything. I'll do some QA, you do some sales, I'll do some sales, all hands on deck. And that is the most efficient business. Nobody can be 10 passionate, you know, five to 10 passionate people on one subject, no job titles, really nothing like that's the, and that's a, that's a fun stage. It's also scary. Cause is it real? Are we, is this, are we just, you know, on drugs and think that this is actually going to happen? Like, so it's a scary time, but it's also it's the fault phase, right? Yeah, it is. It really is. There's this, there's this, this belief you have to have beyond reality that you, you can't touch it. It's not even tangible. So that's exciting. Um, and then once you get past 15, it, you really need to now start stepping back and say, okay, we need clarity of roles. And that's where that was the first big stage for me as a CEO. Okay, now I need to say you own this and you are fired or hired based on doing well at this role and you will not do QA and sales and you get some clarity of roles. That's kind of the 15 to 25 person, almost 50, where you spend a lot of time just roles, responsibilities, clarity, right? Um, and then beyond 50, it becomes more about, um, process, a little bit of process. It becomes trying to be thoughtful about things up to even 25 or 50 people. Culture mm -hmm. just happens. It is what it is. Yeah. After 50, you have to actually start, you know, pruning whatever metaphor you want to use for your call. Oh, we had all these things. We used to do this and this and this. And wow, this is weird. And, and really is just for, for 35 year old guys. Like we got to stop that. Right. And so you prune some of the culture and you, but you don't want to destroy it. You just want to, so at 50, you're doing some of that. You're doing some process. Um, and then um, when you get up around 100, 150, it's you get a now you have managers managing managers that um, report to you, right? There's a whole so at that point you're not knowing everyone's name. You're the CEO. Oh my goodness, the CEO walked in the room, right? You're not the guy they hang out with and laugh at and make fun of when you do something stupid anymore. It's it's a different. So at 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 that level, you're you're really trying to give them guidance and 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 have KPIs or OKRs where you're measuring these things mm -hmm. and you'd be much more methodical about it. You're, you're still firefighting a bit, but you've got to pull out. And at that point, and even before that, you've really got to let go. And a, I find a lot of entrepreneurs don't let go. And, and the, the downside, and, and I, I had to do it. 
I had to give up tons of things that I was passionate about. I love problem solving. I love being involved in the day to day. I love the the sales. Yeah. I, You're a builder. Had, but at the time we got to 250, I had to just say, you know, there's really, I just have to do this. this is the role I got to do. And I got to dabble a little bit. And I'd 250. Sit in it took you, it took you to 250 to be like, okay, I'm a CEO. I got to do the CEO. Thing. Yeah. It's, I got to deal with all the, you know, I got to do the comp and benefits for these guys. I got to deal with this fire. I've got to, you know, um, plan for the offsite to get these eight people that that don't really know what's going on up to the basics so they can engage and like it's a mm. lot of it's not as exciting um because uh, if you're yeah. an entrepreneur started from zero you you, you get your hands it was i was just listening to an, a video with terry matches right? like he still gets his hands dirty right and you can yeah. but that can't you you know if you've got a massive project you've got to completely yeah. get out and make I, sure you're the right people i think at that stage you do it to get a taste oh yeah i just got my fill of you yeah. know getting my hands dirty, building something, contributing to the project. And I mentioned it earlier, but like, you're a builder. You're one of those guys who like you, your whole life, you just have to build something, and whether it's products or people or organizations, you're just building. Um, what you just said reminds me of uh, an article that I read back in the day uh, by Harley from uh, Shopify. And he said that there was a clear moment when he went from a leadership type role to a management type role. And I think it's when Shopify was getting more and more mature, you know, at the beginning, you're leading small teams and you have to take the lead and you have to kind of, you have to, you have to be the first person to actually take on a job and then show the others how to do it. But eventually it becomes about, you know, controlling processes. And like you said, KPIs, quality control, all of that stuff. So it, um, I will yeah. throw one other thing because I think it is interesting. You do pull yourself out, but then one of the, and maybe it's a trick I have, but I think it's important. You have to pick little things that you'll go and do, right? And so, um, you know, the, one example, like I wanted empowerment. I wanted everyone to feel like, I wanted to hire the brightest people and get out of their way, right? So how do I make sure? But a lot of people come in from their previous company's baggage of no, no, nine levels of approval. Don't even say anything unless you already got a pre-approval from somebody. So I would I would empower people. And so I would jump down to a low level. You can't, you can't um, defeat your management layer. So you had to be careful how you do these little um, things that, that build your culture. But I remember it was in the kitchen once and um, our ops team had found a very cost-effective way to kind of make some ping pong tables out of furniture and some little clip-on things. And this one developer, pretty introverted guy, you know, he just happened beside me. So that's so cool we have that. He says, we should have a tournament. I said, that's a great idea. I'll, I'll do the prizes. You run the tournament. And he's like, oh, See, really? And so he did, he ran a tournament. They had a blast, right? And so a developer who was not at all in the social committee, had no empowerment, yeah. full support of CEO did it. And I think people saw that and go, oh, then yeah. I should clearly be able to go and fix this DTV problem or this crap yeah. problem. So that's I do think you still example. have to do these. Yeah, you have to do these little things. And that's, um, yeah, that helps. Yeah, you're showing them that uh, you can take risks. You can you can step out of the, you know, you can step out of the line uh, from time to time and, because as I think a big challenge of companies as they get bigger is their ability to innovate naturally goes down as bureaucracy sets in. So you also don't want to lose that. You really don't want to lose what got you there in the first place, which is being innovative and being scrappy and being, well, just taking risks, calculated risks, albeit. And that's got to be a challenge in itself is making sure that at 250 employees, that you guys are still, you're still infusing the company with um, a culture of innovation. Yeah, but also at the same time, and this is the balance, you know, we, we had a way of a whole bunch of video game developers, right? Because we built a video game engine for apps, right? And so 
we had a bunch of people like, man, we could build this amazing. And so we'd have hack days and they'd let them do it. But there's a bunch of crazy ideas that just didn't make sense. Like, guys, we can't do this. Like, we can't, like, hey, look, why don't we be the clearinghouse of all, this is one, a bunch of our developers. So why don't we just be the clearinghouse of all content, right? Which makes even more sense now. Good luck finding where a show is on, right? I can't even, I'm in the industry and I don't always know where I can get the latest episodes of Star Trek or whatever. Why don't we be the clearinghouse? Like, yeah, but do you know that's like a, it's like, sure, we could do it. Maybe it's a half million bucks to code it, but it's like five to 10 million to market it. And we don't have that. No one's gonna, it's like, so yes, I get that you, so there was also some very careful kind of saying, guys, we gotta stay on this track. You can't scale a business if we don't just keep doing what we did before. Um, but then innovation in like the ping pong table example, like that was very innovative. They wanted ping pong tables. It'd be hundreds and hundreds of dollars and shipping. And, but we had some old furniture it was kind of in the shape of it. Clip on some things for 15 bucks, bang, ping pong tables. That was innovation. Great. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's, it's a, it's a balance. Cool. And, um, you know, as you were explaining the evolution of the CEO role throughout different stages of the company, um, could you give a sense of the time to each phase? Cause I think a lot, like you explained it really quickly, but I think a lot of entrepreneurs probably don't have a sense of scale, like time scale here. So how long are you in those phases? I mean, I guess you can only speak for your experience because every company is different. But uh, what was it for UITV? Yeah, so I, it, I I used headcount, and I think that's probably still one of the most important ones. You can have cases where maybe you have manufacturing and software development, and they run separate, and maybe those those numbers don't make sense. But revenue isn't a good measure. If you're a dealership, you can get into millions in revenue and have one or two employees, right? Because you sell cars. They, right? So revenue isn't. So I think headcount's one. And for us, it varied, right? We we definitely hit some spots um, where it was tougher, but I. I think you can only go so fast through them. And I, and I don't know what that speed is, but we doubled probably, I think three or four years in a row, we doubled. And when you're hitting your numbers, you, you, you know, you can, you can just say, Hey, yeah, I know we screwed that up, but you know what? We closed so much revenue, but when revenue and, and expectations are kind of online and you don't have all those things, it gets really tough. And there's definitely a, I feel like we were doubling for three or three, maybe even four years in a row. And it was every year I would say, guys, what got us here isn't going to get us there. And it was not just my role, everybody. And I would be quite clear. I'm reinventing myself. I'm not in, in the projects anymore. I don't know all the people. I'm not even in doing interviews anymore for hiring. Like I'm stepping out. You guys have to do the same. Right. Um, but I do feel like probably the last one when we added, when we went, because we went from 150 to 250 pretty quickly. And I think we hadn't quite nailed the 150 yet. And I feel like everything kind of, we, we, there was a year where it just was. It was hell. Yeah. Well, actually just a bunch of stuff and we're all like, oh, this, that, but I'll bet you if you stood back and say, you know what, like you didn't have all the process in place and the, these were all givens. I bet you we could go back and, and see the problems and then look and say, well, are we going to focus on that problem for the next year? No, we're not going to focus on it. Okay. Then you're probably going to have that. So I, I do feel like um, that was there. Funding can help, right? I mean, if I certainly, you know, and I've talked to Toby too, there's a bunch of mistakes they made and they just funded their way through it. Um, and that's great. And you, you can sometimes, we, we weren't that fortunate. We never raised enough funding that we had a lot of room for error. Yeah. So, um, so when you made mistakes, you had to recalibrate the whole business and spend. And so, yeah, I would say, you know, you, you want at least a year in each phase, at least. Okay. Um, and if so not- let it sink in and master it, right? Cause there is a learning curve to each phase. So, yeah. and, the, and the more people you have, the longer it takes, right? Like it's yeah. at, at 200. So, and that's one of the things as the, as your number of staff grows, 
the eye and this sounds terrible, but it's you, you, you know, the, if you have one employee, the, the IQ of you and that one employee is off the charts, regardless of who they are as an individual. But as you get to 10, you got to simplify it a bit because now you've got people with a background in this and not that. When you get to 250, 1,000, 10,000 people, I mean, at 10,000 people, yep. you have to communicate at like a probably like age two or age three because it has to be yep. so simple. There's yep. so many people. Yeah. So I, I, one of the challenges I've always, you know, focused on but struggled with, I'm sure too, is just communicating at the right level, right? Um, Interesting. OKR. What, what the hell is an OKR? Jason just said we had OKRs now. What are those? Okay, I got to step back. We're going to measure things so that we can track them. Not because, oh, they're going to measure things. Oh my goodness. Now they're going to find out I'm not performing. No, you know, so um, communication, I would say the last two years, it was really around communication and not insulting them with simplicity, but, yeah. but making, and then I, you try and count on your middle management, but again, we grew so fast that middle management was still nascent. I, I, a part of me would love to grow a business at a traditional three, four percent uh, growth rate, where you can just every year work on one thing, tweak yeah. it next year. When you're growing at fifty to one hundred percent, I mean, yeah, it's everything has to change in parallel. So it's 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 fun. I mean, it's why we do it, right? It, we don't really want that consistency, but I think that's you know some advice, anyways. Man, you're you're bringing up so many questions that I want to ask you, but I'm gonna have to compile them and go at them one by one. So, on the subject that we just covered, um, I remember watching a video that just really struck me about organizations and communication dynamics in growing organizations. So, as you can imagine, as the number of nodes or like employees in a company increases, you increase the lines of communication at an exponential rate, right? Like there's more nodes. So like you're they're, they're like for a doubling, you're getting a quadrupling of lines of communication. And so maybe that comes to, maybe that comes to explain a little bit of what you just said, because, and it would make sense to simplify means to reduce the friction of communication and the more clarity that you can achieve, um, perhaps messages are less distorted by the time they get to the other end. And Perhaps they have to they travel the the the, the path of least resistance as opposed as opposed to bouncing around a bunch of different people in the company. So so I find that interesting. Like that's just an insight that I wanted to to linger on for a sec. Yeah, I'll, a quick comment on it. I mean, yeah. if you grow a business slow enough, and I, I I'm I don't know if a if a geek analogy from software development will be appropriate here, but I know we oh, yeah. have the highest per capita of software developers Do it. in this area. <laughs> so so if you look at each business unit as delivering or having APIs, right? And if you grow slow enough after your time, it's like, here's my set of APIs. I deliver bug fixes. I deliver software cycles every three months. And I have this other thing where if you pay me some money, I'll accelerate my roadmap. Okay, that's engineering. Okay, accounting. I have a set of APIs. I'll do pay you your salary, but you got to... But when you're growing at this speed, those APIs are being rewritten every day. And so, yeah, you can end up with... And then really then the layers of communication. Well, I'm just going to bypass the APIs and go directly to the person yeah. in accounting or directly. And that actually is okay. I didn't, I didn't discourage it. In fact, we actually eventually got to the point where we were making these APIs for all the business units. And I actually, we got too rigorous about it. I said, actually just, okay. there's nothing wrong from someone yeah. in services, my hundred person services group, reaching over to my 80 person development and just go ask the person in development. Yeah. Oh no, no, that's, I, yeah. I got to follow the process. No. So finding that balance is tricky. Well, Elon Musk uh, famously sent out an email and he said, if I hear of anyone uh, blocking communications because there's like a management layer in between, it's like they're fired sort of thing. Cause I think, and if, 
I can only imagine, I can extrapolate that if at 250, you were having these kind of, you know, communication structural issues to manage. Imagine at 50,000 employees, how chaotic that must be. So he must have just been fed up with all these like stupid things happening. And he was probably just like, look, if you want an answer from someone in that department at that level, just go. <laughs> yeah. And he had to like that. You look at what they did. They completely reinvented the car. They, they, if it, it, it's, it, I don't think unless you've ha had a Tesla, I don't know if everybody appreciates just how radical it is, right? They, yeah. they do their development cycles different. They, it is a completely software driven car. I mean, it, they had, they were innovating like crazy. Whereas the automotive industry, eh, they look at something, they have a year to look at it. They RFP it for a year. Then they try and put it in a car and, um, so yeah, he needed to break that down for 100%. sure. And, and you have to imagine like, just to, if we stay on this a little bit longer, like he often talks about how the car is not the most complicated thing to build. It's actually the system that makes the car. And I would argue that even that is not the most impressive thing that they've been able to do. In fact, I think Elon Musk is the, the greatest thing that he ever built was his companies because the company has to be able to build those things. So it's necessarily the more complex of the set of products that there are to build. And I think you, if you don't have the company that can support the factory that can make the car, then it's just not going to work in any case. So, yeah. And think about the complex balance he had. So one safety is number one, never hurt anybody, never do anything wrong, but yet their DNA was change stuff, innovate, fast. different, new yeah. challenge. I don't know to me. I don't, I don't know that I, could have done it. Like, it's almost like he went into the medical space and then every, and then said, yeah, and we're going to try a whole new way of operating through all the books out from the last hundred years. That's kind of what he did. And I think he took a huge risk and he had the right network and he's, he's a smart guy and he worked every waking hour of every day for 20 years. Like, I think, I think there were many chances where that it couldn't have worked out, but we're in the universe where it did work out. <laughs> so we're seeing the, the upside, right? <laughs> and there's another thing I'll throw in too for him. You, as a CEO, one of the things that never changes, if you are, if you have a, and we were like many Ottawa companies, we were the company behind the companies, right? So I didn't have a, a face that I was going out too much unless I wanted to, but in case of his, it did. But if you have any chance to be the face of the company, you should be, you should get out there. And to me, how he got by a lot of those, because they definitely made mistakes. People did die. Shit did happen, you know, yeah. but he got on it. He was there. He was authentic. Yeah. And um, not all CEOs have it, but if you have it, man, capitalize on that and do it. And, and that's a tricky one too. Again, as we got to 250, how do you, how do you leverage Jason to jump in and, and, and help with this? Um, so, yeah. No, that's awesome. A lot of, a lot of, a uh, lot of information, very dense, um, dense conversation. Um, I want to come back to the the evolution of the CEO, and uh, I always like to bring up this topic. Uh, it's fascinating to me: personality psychology. You know, what is what is it about some people? Was what is it about other people that allows them to do certain things? Um, to be a startup CEO, um, a successful one, you know, and you've you've you cross that mark. It's 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 written in stone. What single personality trait, or maybe a couple traits would you say are like fundamental to have and you know for all the young entrepreneurs listening to this and founders you know what, what should they double down on so i'd say the number one trait is curiosity which may surprise people but i think you've got to be always curious or else you're just going to get left behind 
Um, thick skin helps. Uh, if you look at most entrepreneurs, they have a bit of an interesting start to their careers, right? Very few successful entrepreneurs were the star quarterback that had parents that were rich that, I mean, yes, money and stature and all that can help going to Harvard for sure. So, but if you look at the entrepreneurs that started from zero and built it up, which I imagine a lot of the people are, if, if their parents have tons of money, they don't have to listen to this podcast. Let's buy the buy someone to fix the problem for them. So um, I do think having a bit of an interesting childhood where you yeah. really had to earn and fight things and fully agree probably with you. bullied and you saw things differently and stuff. So I, I think, you know, having thick skin probably from that is if you statistically won, but I think just being curious, you, you, this is a constant evolution. You, you have to love change, but then also appreciate that there are times you have to just stick to it and get it done. You can't be all about um, new and exciting, but uh, yeah, I think curiosity is the biggest one. And when I hire people too, it's the, the one trait I love to see where they're just constantly. And so one of the things that UI, we, you know, do you have a hobby? And you know, people are like, oh, I have a hobby. No, no, I want to know. Yep. Yeah. I have a $10,000 telescope on a concrete surface that I got a uh, vibration free. You're hired. That has nothing to do with my business and you are hired, buddy, because wow, like the yeah. amount of work and effort and tenacity and you can still keep doing yeah. that. In fact, that's great. Um, yeah. In fact, let's, but I think that's a key thing. You know what I think it is? Um, have you read the book Sapiens by uh, Noah Yuval Harari or Yuval Noah Harari? No, um, I haven't. Fantastic book. I recommend it to anyone. It's it's really this macro view of history, of human history from the time we were hunter-gatherers all the way to modern societies. And he condenses it in a beautiful way. And there is a chapter on when humans um, really started taking the future into their own hands. And it was when we applied science to the world. And what's at the basis of science is questioning your reality is being curious and saying, maybe there is a better way, or maybe we don't have all the answers. So I need to go explore that way on the ocean. And maybe there's lands over there and maybe I have to dig and find something down there. Maybe I can go higher, you know? And I think if I, you know, I'm just kind of, I'm taking what you said and I'm trying to add to it, but like, yeah, I think that sense of curiosity leads to a sign, maybe a scientific approach and you want that kind of engineer to work in your company. Someone who's going to say, hmm, is there a better way to make this UI? You know, the user interface for this thing? Is there a better way to, you know, can we optimize the spending? Can we, so- You, you want that, that person. Some people find them annoying. It's like, well, they're always questioning everything. They're always asking stuff. Just do your job. It's like, hey, that kind of person, I want it. it. You know, everybody else, you can go, there's lots of jobs where it is, you know what, it's been done this way for 20 years. No one's going to change it. Fine, go do that. But yeah, in this in this industry, we really need that kind of personality for sure. And I think it's an exciting time. You look at eras, I think it's interesting. And I, if you look over like hundred year periods, there's these year, hundred year windows of ignorance. Mm -hmm. And then they thought they knew it all. And then ignorance and thought they knew it all. And exactly. I think right now we're in an age of ignorance right now, right? We don't know what 95% of matter is. We don't know. We think there is like, even at how waves and particles, like it's still, it's a whole bunch of, holy crap, we don't know stuff. There's, there's a lot a of blind time spot. to live. I, I want to live in the era of ignorance and excitement about trying to solve it yeah. rather than some of the previous ones where they're like, hey, Aristotle said that he knew everything there is to know. And yeah. maybe at that time he did, but they were totally wrong, right? Um, the basic elements weren't earth, wind, and fire. So. <laughs> yeah. Albeit he he made great advances in his time, Aristotle, but of course, there 
he has his own blind spots and he didn't have access to the measurement instruments that we have now. And we all build on it, right? It's uh, that's the thing. And we keep, yeah, I, I, that's what a tech startup is. You need to build something that others can build on top of ideally even. Yeah, fully agree. Fully agreed. And as CEO, not to, not to beat it at horse too much. Like you, you have to instill that throughout the culture and, and, and like encourage it. Like even with the ping pong table, like you said, there was a degree of, uh, well, we can save money and have fun. You know, like we'll just find a, a crafty way of doing it and encouraging people to take those kind of decisions. So, um, no, really fascinating, really fascinating. So, so just to, so it's, it's curiosity for you. Was there like a secondary one that you think is yeah, like- the, the thick skin, you know, it's tough as an entrepreneur, you gotta, you've gotta you, be, you've gotta be battle hardened, whatever the metaphor is, you've gotta been through enough tough stuff that when because times are there again it's i made the joke about the straight path you know it's not i mean even and even ui like i say we doubled four years in a row um we actually closed i think we were doing two million in revenue one year and we closed in one month 10 million in revenue so really the next two years were covered by one month so so it depends how you look so yeah we doubled in size every year if you look at it from an accounting point of view revenue recognition but really we closed 10 million in in one quarter one yeah. month Holy crap. And then we spent the next year and a half trying to absorb it. To digest those, that. Yeah, those were not easy days. And then you have the don't close. And then I mean, we kind of shut down sales for a year and a half back. And then how do you restart sales? And Wendy, and we didn't even mentally stop it. We just stopped focusing on it. No one wanted to hear about more sales because we couldn't hire enough engineers. And so we went way too much into execute, not into sales. And then, oh, a year and a half later, holy crap, guys, we need to sell some shit. Like we, it was great. And so- um, finding that balance is tricky. I'm going to take advantage of the fact that you're actually a technical CEO. Like your background is actually, you know, engineering first, which is for me, it's like, it's a superpower when you start a business. I, I honestly think that, um, unfortunately I have an engineering, <laughs> engineering background, but I didn't pursue it far enough to like get really good at coding, for example. So I never really touched that. I stayed more on the business side, unfortunately, but Let's talk more about your product. Um, I think it's a great opportunity to have you on and talk about what you guys actually made with UI TV. So for the audience who don't know, who aren't familiar with the company and the product, because it is like a service, like it's a B2B. So it's like, you're, you're like a kind of backend service, right? For some other companies, but what is UI and what were you trying to build and what did you succeed in building? Yeah, yeah. Let me give you the, the the three or four minutes spiel, even from the beginning. I mean, because to me, the beginning was important. We didn't start out with technology trying to find a problem, which you can do and they can be successful. We saw the iPhone and we said, holy crap, everybody's screwed, right? Like this is back and, you know, shows my age a bit, right? But BlackBerry, Nokia were 90% of the smartphone market and only executives. And, you know, you had to be $200,000 a year salary plus to really be using these things. And you, you, they were very difficult to use. Um, and then boom, the iPhone came out and my two-year-old loved it, just touching it. My wife who wanted nothing to do with it, she, she loved it. I loved it. I'm like, okay, this is a game changer. This is fundamentally changing how people relate to technology and they will never license it. So we said, okay, we're going to make that engine available to everybody. And we literally started copying the iPhone and my co-founder Stuart had a bunch of IP from a video game engine and we just started cobbling it together. So we had a, we started off with a business problem, which persisted throughout the entire and still is um, there today, which we were lucky uh, about. 
Um, and then we started helping hardware manufacturers literally doing that um, to create great experiences. And, and how we did it, the other thing that was unique. So we saw an opportunity, but I think even then a lot of people looked at the iPhone and said, there's a GPU, a graphics chip in a phone. And back in those days, this is whatever, uh, 12 years ago, a graphics chip was a really high-end thing that some yeah. computers had. An average computer would just have a very basic 2D one, a phone with a graphics chip. And what we really, the other thing we realized is, you know what, these graphics chips are going to be everywhere. Uh, what's the difference between a video game and a really good app? Nothing. And so we had these, these realizations about this whole new paradigm and really wanted to create a product for that. And so in the end, though, it really was if you want to simplify it, 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 you download Unity or Unreal game engine to build the next amazing game. You would download our SDK, just like Unreal or Unity, but then you'd build apps that work on iOS, Android, but also Xbox and PS4 and Roku and Amazon and LG and Samsung and smart cars, like everything. So it was really an SDK, um, but we, re we had, because what we were doing was so radical, um, we had to do a lot of services to get it out there. And that GPU is what, what, what changed. So prior to us, and this is one of the problems we had with funding, everyone look, okay, the uh, UI engine. Okay, there are hundreds for the last 25 yeah. years, there's hundreds. Like when Windows 3.1 came out, boom, there was already dozens of different graphical user interfaces. You guys are the 150th. And by the way, Apple's got it nailed. They have the best and they have like 10,000 engineers working on it. Android getting there and they have 5,000 engineers. You have five engineers and you're going to do a better job than both those. And I said, yeah, we are because we're going to bypass all that crap, go right to the graphics chip and just do build it from there. And so it was unbelievable. No one believed it. So we had to go and eat our own dog food for all. And I think a lot of times that is the case and that's trickier. So we had to have a, a functioning services group, a functioning <clears throat> product group. But in the end, yeah, it came down to a licensing model per platform. Um, instead of having 10 teams of 10 for 10 platforms, one team of 10 with even a better user experience on all 10 platforms. Wow. And, and by the way, so many people, especially listening to this podcast, have been there in that conversation that you had with investors where they're just not, they're, they're just not getting it. Like the gap between your vision and your understanding of the space and theirs and their economic motive is like just too wide to close a deal. So then you are faced with the great challenge of having to figure it out on your own by generating internal revenues or finding, you know, alternative funding sources. Um, I, I guess the question in there is like, where did you, how did you self-finance or alternatively finance until you got funding? And when you did get funding, how big was the round the first time? Yeah. So, um, so I had, I had founded prior to UI, I had founded a company called Flick Software, which was pure services. We, we, we did a bunch of product stuff, but it was always in, intended to be a profitable service company that would go off and, and do products. And so it did a few internally. Um, and then I ran into Stuart and I said, Hey, um, Stuart, you know, I could, he was brilliant. There's a whole story around how I met with him and the, the, the demo he emailed me when, we, when he left the interview. And I'm like, I just got to hire this guy. He was brilliant. So I, yeah. if I run into somebody who's incredibly brilliant, I've always had a rule is just hire that person, right? Hire, so yeah. hired him. I said, we'll figure out what we're going to do later. So <laughs> that's kind of, so I already had a company with a CFO and some office space. It wasn't big. It was like 15 people or something, right? Yeah. Um, but that's really what allowed me to get it going quicker. So I funded the first probably year and a half. And then we got a bunch of grants, a shred, an IRAP, um, eventually IAF, which is the kind of investment accelerator fund. 
And that was, those were kind of our, I get those, my money plus those are kind of made the seed round and we had revenue, we had to do services. So initially there wasn't even, there wasn't an engineering, in fact, for the first three years, there wasn't an engineering team and a, and a services team. I, I, they were the same. And we built like when we did show me, which I know it failed as a product, but it was a stunning experience. We built the product on in real time with that customer. Like it was a, that was a big sales win for us. Um, so yeah, that that's, and then eventually our first round of funding, which I, I kind of regret, but we didn't have a choice was private equity. Right. So, okay. um, we were the change, this change the world company. We had this technology. No one else had, I, I think it was the first five years, even after shipping, um, some big brands, people still said not possible. I would send an email. We can run a better than an iOS app on iOS and every other platform. And they would write back, that is not possible, right? It's like in our brains, like if I have a universal wrench and a generic wrench, the the generic, the, or sorry, a specific wrench and a, ge and a general wrench, the specific wrench for the job is always better. We were literally saying the generic wrench is better, you know, and yeah. just people would say no. So it was really hard to raise funding. We had to go and 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 rose private equity because they just said, "Hey, you're profitable," and so they invested in us because we're profitable, and that that was good that we got it and it did help. It was a and it was a ten million dollar round of which we only took five. But to be uh, clear, though, just just to be clear, you're saying private equity as in like PE firms, private equity firms, not venture capital firms that are dedicated to startups. So instead of going to like a Sequoia. Uh, you know, or any of these other VCs, you went to a kind of fund that's typically looking for like, they're not looking for 10x returns, they're looking for more like uh, two, three x returns over like five, 10 years. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. Even yeah, five is usually, they kind of look for a, a two to three in a five year window, right? right? Versus the VCs look for a five to 10, and they look for at least a 10x, right? Okay. That's, it's important to make that distinction because I don't know if everyone's familiar with the terminology, but uh, I, I know what you mean now. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's, and, and, and I don't know how much time you want to spend on, on this, but there's, there's a whole scale of, of capital available to people, right? You've got, of course, your family and friends. Um, you've got your line of credit with the bank, which is the cheapest capital. Get as much of that as you can. Um, then you've got um, private equity, which is, you know, they, they invest in relatively low risk companies. They kind of, it's tangible, usually profitable. They look for a fairly quick return. Then there's like venture debt in the middle there, which, you know, if you raise some venture capital, they'll do some debt. And then VC is the most expensive out here. Um, they tend to take the most equity, but they're there for you, with you to change the world, go for something big. And we didn't do cool. VC till our last round, our third. That's incredible. VC. When they finally saw the light. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. And it was, and I'm sure it's some of it on us too, but yeah, it's, it is, it's tough and, and a lot of funds. And I think it, hopefully it's a little bit less in Canada, but back in the day in Canada, it was always um, for every VC, it was a committee and you'd think that makes sense, but anytime you're doing something risky and new and innovative, oh, but did you know Apple has 5,000 engineers, 10,000 engineers trying to do what they're doing and they're doing five. Okay, not to invest. Yeah, Raising so you kill it. Somebody doubt. will bring that up and they'll kill it. You, you, yeah. you can't, to me, any VC that's purely panel driven, you, you'll just miss out on all the, the big ones. You'll just get all the ones that are the me too's that'll struggle because there's already five more because it's so obvious, right? We were not obvious and um, yeah, passed off. We got passed by so many funds just because they didn't uh, think it was yeah. possible. However, what you're telling me is kind of reassuring because we have a startup who seems to be following, has a similar profile to UI in the phase that you're talking about in the sense that they're growing very fast, they're profitable, but 
maybe they don't have the the blitz scaling potential of other startups. So VCs and angels are kind of, hmm, I don't know. But at the same time, maybe they do have a route through private equity that makes more sense for the entrepreneur and for the uh, the investors. Because if that's what they're looking for, like a steady growth, but remaining profitable, then maybe it's another... Um, yeah, my call out, which I've been doing for, for quite a few years now, and I'll, I'll do it here too, is there's a lot of companies that take pride in like, we raised no capital, like we did it ourselves. It's like, and look what we did. It's like, yeah, but look what you could have done if you did have an extra couple million bucks. Yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. Like, exactly. And, and so, but when to, like there is, there's something to be said. We, we went two years without any capital, took a lot of the risk out. Um, there's something to be said for starting off, but at some point when you're really yeah. growing, you got to say, wow, think differently. What if we get, and this is, and this is hard for doing Canada, but you know, give it away and make money on the pro version, right? Yeah. A lot of Canadian companies make money. Like we were profitable. I mean, we were doing disruptive technology, high risk and profitable. That's crazy. It was not easy. And then when we raised VC money, we were able to, you know, do a shared risk model, say here, try it first. So yeah, I, I do. I know a lot of people are like anti- funding in general, but when you look at all the choices available to you, one yeah. of them probably makes sense at the right time. A hundred percent. And um, it's like, you have to do the, the opportunity cost analysis. Like, yeah, you can continue your current growth. It's really good. 50% a year, year after year, and you're profitable. But the day that one of your competitors comes in and they raise, like, it's literally like going to war. They're just raising a war chest. They're going to get uh, $50 million in capital. And they'll do one of two things. They'll either wipe you off the map just through pure competition, or they'll just swallow you up at a very low valuation because you have no other choice. So it's, you know, sometimes funding makes no sense. Sometimes it's just not the right timing. Sometimes the terms don't make sense and all of that. But sometimes you have to do the opportunity cost. Um, if you don't take it, are you missing out on defending yourself? Are you missing out on smaller acquisitions? Are you missing out on market share? The answer is probably yes. So, and and we so go segue from this because I think it's relevant to that too. Our B round was was strategics, both B and C rounds. We had strategics, and I it does make your life complicated for sure. But it, there's a lot of pros and cons if you're in a certain if you're in medical and you have a medical device go and get, you know, the, the major multi-billion dollar medical companies to put 10, five, 10 million bucks in you. Um, it does taint you a little bit. Don't put any legal terms that taint you because you already are tainted just in the fact that they're an investor, but it, I wouldn't change that. So strategic's really good too. And so even if you don't want to take money, they'll have better terms. Um, they'll support you. There's no doubt. I think when we, when we finally got acquired, we had probably 18 active projects across AT&T's empire. And that wouldn't have happened if they hadn't been an investor. They wouldn't have had the comfort level to bring us that deeply inside um, their company. Yeah, no, no doubt. Um, in, so you're talking about AT&T and the, and the exit. Um, tell us about what that's like. Um, how long, like, what is the lead time on a deal that size? And I don't know what's going through your mind at the beginning, middle and end. Um, it, is it kind of bittersweet? You've been building this thing. It's a baby. Uh, you're passing it off to someone else uh, for adoption, if you will. Um, yeah, like, uh, well, tell, tell us about that. Yeah, um, 
So, I mean, I think every acquisition is, is different for sure. There's some where they just spring it on you and you don't, you don't know what's coming. This one, we, we were expecting it for a couple of years. In fact, there, there was, there was times when we thought it was just months away, even two years ago from them acquiring us because we were so fundamental to their business. Um, but you know, what I learned is that these massive organizations that are, you know, hundreds of thousands of employees and they do all this planning, they're super strategic. It kind of just comes down to one or two people. Right. And so we were certain two years ago and it even kind of leaked out through the company because we were winning so much business there. Mm-hmm. And one of the champions said, yeah, we're going to buy you. Um, and then of course this was from Turner, which got bought by AT&T. And so they said, yeah, as soon as we get bought by ATT, we're going to buy you guys. And they were telling, like, they were telling my sales staff this. So I couldn't stop it. So really screw the company up for a good six, oh, yeah. six or eight months. Okay. And we're like, okay, great. I guess we're going to, they're telling us we're going to get bought. We're going to, these are C-level people in charge of this company. They've done lots of acquiring. AT&T bought them and they bought like seven, six or seven companies and we weren't on the list. And we're like, what's going on, right? And turned out our champions were just for a year overlooked and didn't get the promotions they thought they were going to get. Oh, okay. And, um, and then finally, and so we actually had to go back and that, that was a tough time. And there's a whole set of lessons in there, right? Like you, you want to be on it. We have a very open and honest culture, but if you're being acquired and you start telling people being open, honest about it, it just messes them up, right? Everybody's like, okay, well now I need all this fixed. And it, it's just brutal, distracts everyone. Um, so we did get the company back on track, but there were some dark days in there where everybody thought we were going to exit and we weren't, and we got to get back to it. Um, but then, yeah, then two years later, HBO Max came out and they needed to generate billions in revenue. And, um, you know, we, they really wanted to lock us down to be there. It created the business case for an acquisition. Yeah. And, and you guys, it was such a good deal. You couldn't say no, because I always have this feeling that, well, there's really only two paths, uh, other than failure. It's like, well, we just keep growing ad infinitum and we can just keep becoming a bigger and bigger business. And maybe expanding into new markets or exit. So at what point do you decide, yes, exit, no, continue, like no to continuing and yes, we'll exit. Like, did you have that option or was this one of those scenarios where you didn't have an option, the, the, the roads were closed and so the exit was really the best opportunity for you? So I, I always have a plan A, B, and C. And, and plan A is the, you know, just was always a traditional plan. Raise the A, B, C, D, and IPO and change the world, right? Because we, we really, we knew we had the ability to be every piece, every, every app, every piece of code that needs to touch glass on a screen somewhere. We knew that was our opportunity. is massive, right? So we had that as plan A. But then you always have to have plan B in place, you know? So our D round was very difficult to raise D round. COVID didn't help any. Mm-hmm. Um, we were pivoting from being revenue-based to being developer-based, right? Because we were we were a services company that moved into a, uh, or was, we were never a service company, but we did a lot of services to make the product work. And then we were now in the stage where hundreds of developers outside our business had it and we were supporting them. So it wasn't about revenue, but we weren't able to get investors um, to, okay. to buy into that. So in the end, the D round, we couldn't raise the D round. And then this made a lot of sense. Yeah, It would have been nice to have had both and play them off each other. Um, so, but we were very frank all the way along. Like I, I, for years, I would say, okay, guys, in the, for the next two years, either we're going to get acquired by one of our customers, Comcast, AT&T, Sky, one of these major ones, or after two years and after our D round, then it's an IPO or it's Microsoft or Google or Adobe, right? Because we, we were really only winning in the TV space, which is the most fragmented of all the spaces, but we knew banks needed our stuff, banking apps, 
I mean, they're not beautiful. They're not intuitive. They're not easy to use. They're recoded on every platform. Banks needed our stuff. Yeah. So, um, so we knew it was going to have to be Microsoft or Google, but I was never, all these customers, of course, the Comcast and AT&T's, uh, Disney, we were doing business with them, but we weren't doing any business with Google, Amazon, Adobe, and Microsoft, who are really the, the ideal acquirers for us. Hmm. And I wasn't able to get anything going with them. So you know, that was my other initiative. And I had some people working on how do we get a strategic initiative going with the CTOs at Microsoft or something? I wasn't able to get them no. to come to life. Do you think it's because they were, they felt uh, self-reliant enough? I mean, they have in, almost infinite resources by all means, and they have the developers and all this. So maybe they were just like, look, Whatever they can bring to us, we can build it in a year or two. I don't know. Each different for sure. I would say if I had to pick one, it's that there just wasn't a business unit or an executive capable of spending that kind of money that would need to buy us focused on that area. Like Adobe, for instance, we all know Adobe and Flash, right? And, and really we were what Flash wishes it was, right? If you want to just right. be really simple. So, so the no brainer is that Adobe should have bought us because Flash failed. And then they tried all these other things. We were the no brainer replacement sure. for Flash and could have been. But there was no, they, the way Adobe was structured, there were no executives that owned the glass, cared about the glass. They were all back end. They okay. all just did the pieces. So there was no champion. So I spoke to the R&D. They, they're like, wow. Like, but because of the way they were structured, there was no way for Adobe to buy us. And so, because that was always the joke. We, we had tons of people try and buy us in the first three or four years. Hey, we'll buy it for one, two, 10 million bucks. Like, no, we're going to sell. We'd always say we're going to sell to Adobe for a billion. Just, just to kind of set the stage that we're not going to sell for 10 or 20, you know. That's awesome. And, but but Adobe would never was structured. No. I think maybe, maybe getting there now, but too late. But so, yeah, so I, I would really brutal analysis across all these acquirers, the stage you're at. And because we were UI TV, they weren't noticing us, right? We just weren't on the radar. We yeah. weren't UI apps everywhere that are amazing. We were UI TV. And so they didn't even know that we were going to solve all the IoT problems and all those things. But I, yeah. I'll tell you, yeah. five years from now, we'll chat again and we'll look back and I can guarantee you there'll be a whole pile of UI competitors. We were oh, yeah. way ahead of the time. This is where you, the OS is great and, and people have invested a lot in the OSs, right? Roku and, and um, uh, LG has their own OS, Samsung, iOS. But really OSs limit you to, to either owning the whole device or not. The way you can own it all is just having a UI engine, right? So Google is limited to their massive monetization stuff predominantly on Android. They can't do it on iOS. So, but if Android hey. used us, um, so you'll see that it's probably five years out yet, but they're going to realize it's actually the engines that people build the apps in that you really want to own. The OS, it, it's useful for sure, but you're always going to be limited to the audience you can reach. We had no limits. We were on dozens of operating systems in dozens of countries. Couldn't the acquire um, its uh, AT&T group or, and more specifically HBO Max, it's going to use the, the engine you guys built, but couldn't they continue doing business development and continue marketing this in all the ways that you mentioned? They could, yeah. We, we don't know what they'll do long-term. Uh, right now they've, you know, and I'm not saying anything they're not been public about, they need to take a business unit called HBO Max that, you know, needs to, was generating very little revenue to generating billions. That's their primary focus. But I have no doubt that in the future, you know, they loved everything about us, that who we are, what we were and our vision, they loved it. And so that was all part of our vision. So they could, yeah. Cool. There's some really cool stuff they could do in the future um, if they wanted to with our tech that uh, some of it didn't even make it out into mainstream or if it did, we didn't even tell people we're doing it. So it'll be interesting. I have to say you've, you added a completely new um, lens through which I 
had previously modeled uh, acquisitions, right? Because we have our, like, we have these mental models and it's like, oh, this is how an acquisition works. And you added the dimension of, well, you have to make sure that the target companies that you're approaching have the right structure. Like, uh, fundamentally, is their, is their organizational structure going to support this kind of acquisition? And I think there's a few, men there's a few um, criteria that you brought up. Like, is there a strong business unit head who has a lot of authority, who has a lot of uh, a high budget, a large budget, who believes in what you, like, did you make a connection with them on a fundamental level so that they believe in your thing? So if you can't check those criteria, your job is a lot, it's a lot harder, right? It is. And if you want to exit for big dollars, which I imagine most of us do, you, you know, how high up the chain are you? Like I've had a bunch of startups come, hey, Bell or whatever, uh, Samsung's going to buy me. Okay, who's your contact? Yeah. Oh, we've got a manager in, uh, in uh, Silicon Valley. A middle manager. <laughs> so when we got like, uh, you know, the number of times AT&T told us like the CFO of AT&T had to approve, which they used as an excuse to not increase the price. And I was like, hold on a sec. If the CFO of AT&T, which is a how many billions, like that person has to approve this. That's how important we are. Okay, well, we know, yeah. we know. So the right person, the right amount of pain, and, and so the organization and pain, you probably could get a group consensus maybe if the organization's right, but it is surprising even at this size and scale, it comes down to a very small group, usually even one person. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. It's awesome. Uh, thanks for clarifying that. And I want to come back and, you know, just one more question maybe before we end, but um, I want to come back to your unique maybe not so unique, but your unique um, position, having a software company, a service-based software company beforehand, and that's what kind of allowed you to self-fund this thing, right? So I have questions about, well, is this generally an approach that you would suggest for uh, founders? Uh, I, I've got founders in our incubator who actually do have revenue generating sources that are not necessarily in line with what they're pursuing as a startup. But that's what allows them to stay alive. That's, that's what allows them to not have a job elsewhere. Or if they can't raise money, then they won't die right away, right? So to what point is that a valid strategy? When does it become troublesome to make the switch from one to another? And like that becomes your primary objective is to make the startup work. And I guess in your case, more specifically, um, who like... Was it two separate companies or was UITV made within uh, Flick Software? So it is very difficult. Um, uh, it's not, a, I do reckon, I, I do think it's a good way to go. And for some ideas, it makes sense, but they were one company. It was all Flick Software. All UI employees started out in Flick Software okay. initially. Okay. And then um, I had already spun out in Flick Software, tried, not spun out, had product inside the company and it wasn't working. We always, you have a set of KPIs. It can't be 10. It's got to be two or three, really. You know, you can, as you go down levels, you can have more of them. But in the end, you've got one or two. Well, guess what? It's revenue and profitability if you're a service company. Well, product is always going to kill that. So um, so if you've got a well-oiled service machine that's profitable, product's going to kill that. And then so if you're always picking the two yeah. um, and people want their bonuses, they'll always pick you know the services. It, it's like whatever the metaphor cut off your nose to, despite the, your face, right? Like, so eventually you have to spin them out. You can do it. You can dabble for a little bit. And I know some companies have done it, but you do have to, I believe you have to do what I did. You've got to spin it out 
and you've got to get some people excited about doing services and building a service business with lots of good um, bonuses because you're going to be profitable. And then a product company where you're going to get screwed and get low salary and it's going to be tough, but you're going to get a ton of money in the exit, right? Yeah. And so, and different personalities. <laughs> and so we did, we did that. It was very difficult. Flick did do quite well for four or five years after that. But it did eventually get very jealous of product and it wanted product and it, it, it needed a differentiator. And after they went down a product path, it, 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 I had to wind it down. But it was, it was sustained itself for about five years. And the two helped each other a lot, not strategically, but yeah. tactically. Whenever there was a bad quarter at Flick, there was almost always a good quarter at UI and vice versa. And maybe that was because I was bouncing around a bit too, but it was very helpful. But at some point, you got to make very clear lines. You've got to get a vision and a mission and a why and a passion for both. Um, but it's difficult, but I would recommend it. The hybrid that I would do now, I'd like to just skip a few steps and just call up, let's use the metaphor of UI, just sure. call up uh, AT&T and say, what's your next major problem? And fund me out of the gate to do it. And I'll do services to build it, but then I'll go sell it elsewhere. Like maybe even just bake in the fact wow. that you're going to build it um, with a strategic, that would be a, a, a fun hybrid, but it does I love that approach. have- yeah, it does help to have accounting and banking relationships and CFOs and office space and a phone number and a phone, all that stuff is nice to have it all. And, and that was there because of Flick, yeah. This, is, uh, this was an awesome conversation and I have a feeling that it's not going to be our last because there's just so much more to cover in, you know, in this great topic of entrepreneurship and founding startups. So, uh, but I want to thank you for your time today and uh, for literally giving us uh like leaving nothing on the table <laughs> you didn't hold back um thank you so much jason uh anything any closing thoughts uh that you want to add no i hey i love doing it and if any of your listeners um have some other insights for me or thoughts or comments on it i'd love to hear it as well love to engage um with them i'm on linkedin easy way to get a hold of me um, but no, I loved it. I'd be happy to do it again. This is great. It's the, as you can probably tell, it's a topic I'm very passionate about. So, well, thanks again. Really appreciate it.